Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Ankh View. As always, I am Ankh. I'm joined by my nephew, Mr. Brendan Michael Lemon, joining us from the lovely murder capital of <laughs> the galaxy, Chicago, Illinois. Are I you wonder, there? I really do wonder if it's going to be the murder capital of the galaxy. Like if aliens land in the future at some point, we become, <laughs> we become friends with them. In conversation, we all start relating, you know, just uh, statistics from our various home worlds. And Chicago actually becomes the murder capital of the galaxy. (laughs) Well, I think there's a very key distinction or um, factor that needs to be considered there, which is, of course, if they happen to just randomly and unfortunately for them land in Chicago, they'll be killed before the conversation can probably happen. Oh, yeah. Somebody would jack their... Their uh, their flying saucer for sure. <laughs> yeah, flying flying saucer jacking Yo, is becoming. This, how come a this problem? don't got any rims on it? <laughs> <laughs> so any anyway, enough with that <clears throat> pointless banter. We're here today to talk about something that is is actually well it depends upon your perspective, I suppose. But we're here to talk about something that I think will be of interest to a lot of people, hopefully. And given all the commentary we've had on politics here on the UnkView podcast in the last few months, we thought it would only be fitting and appropriate as the Obama presidency is just about to end. In fact, as we record this, it's a mere four days away when the Obama's uh, second term will end. Yeah. Uh, Brendan and I are going to have a debate today. We've never done this before. and we've, In fact, it's interesting because one of the original thoughts we had about this podcast was that we would pick topics and have debates about them. We really haven't done much of that, but today we're actually hoping to do that. And we want to have a real, actual debate, respectful, courteous, no name-calling. I'm not going to refer to him as the sleazy, uninformed, ignorant liberal that he is. I'm not going to say that because that would be inappropriate. Um, but Brendan is going to argue the, obviously, the Obama will go down as the best president in the history of the United States side of the debate. Well, I'll be handling the Obama is the worst president in the history of the United States side of the argument. And in the interest of brevity, we're going to try to make our points as, you know, as shorthand and as cliff notes as possible because this is, you know, not normally a... 27-hour podcast, so we know we can't cover everything in the level of detail that we probably should if we were going to make every point, and that's why the Ultimate Podcast page on our blog will have a lot of information that we're probably not going to make specific reference to here in the, in the actual conversation because we just don't have time. So we're going to go fast, uh, at least I think we are, and so I'll stop right here, Brennan, just to let you provide any introductory remarks you'd like to make. Well, I just want to say that uh, the 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 hyperbole aside, I will be arguing the pro Obama. He's a great guy. Happy he was president. Going to go down in history with a big smiley face and a bunch of stars next to his name. Versus the other side, I think it's pretty hard to argue that Obama was a better president than, let's say, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to attempt to do that. 
Or uh, Jimmy Carter. You forgot Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter has done a lot <clears throat> post-presidency for this country that I think we should be very proud of, and he doesn't get a lot of, I think, respect for. But that's an entirely other point. I just want to say that, like, look, I think that um, in part of this discussion, I think, may end up, uh, or debate may end up... Uh, It'll be interesting to see how far we go with this, and then what, at what point this turns into an interesting discussion, because my feelings on Obama have actually changed quite a bit in the eight years that he's been president. But uh, I am way more pro-Obama than you are, absolutely. I mean, that's, I think, patently obvious. Yes, and I, you know, and just reacting to what you just said, I would appreciate if you would take, you know, the most powerful pro-Obama position that you can irrespective of how your feelings may have changed, because that's just the essence of a debate. Sure. And so I, what I would ask you to do is any, any, any place before we kind of get to what we agree, uh, we agree to is sort of the end of the debate. Why don't you withhold any, you know, anything you might say in the interest of objectivity and just take the most, you know, fierce and staunch pro Obama position that you can. Got it. And so but I'm going to let you go first, Brennan, but before you, before you start arguing your side of this, I think it's important to, uh, to sort of establish context here. I, I posted a, on my Facebook wall yesterday a question, and I'm not looking at it now, so this is from memory. But basically it was, what are the responsibilities of a sitting U.S. president? And I asked that question for a couple of reasons. One is because I honestly didn't know. And, I, and, and secondly, and I knew I could just look it up quickly, but I really wanted to see what other people thought. And being honest, most of the responses that were provided were fairly accurate. But um, that said, I'm actually reading from the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. And this is Article 2, Section 1. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that before yesterday, I had never looked at this. I'm going to skip 90% of it. And just focus in on a couple of points, so this won't be long. I will post the entirety of this again in the blog post. But I'm just going to read what I think are the most salient points within this uh, Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, which specifically talks about the executive power slash the president of the United States. So the end of Section 1 of this article says, Before he enter on the execution of his office... He shall take the following oath or affirmation. <clears throat> Quote, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. First thing I want to say about that is it's the only place within this entire article where, you know, where there's reference to an oath being taken and that's the totality of it yeah so it really focuses in on the constitution yep yep and then uh the end of section three i'm reading this out of context but i'm not distorting this at all it says he shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all the officers of the united states so and then the, the remainder of it is a, a brief section that talks about um, possibly being impeached. But it's important to note, again, the, the thing I just said about, you know, the only thing that there's the only place where there's an oath directly relates to the, you know, the defending of the Constitution. And then that last part I read was the end of the part, the end of the list of stuff. 
and it says, he shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So I just wanted to, I wanted to establish that context because I think so many of us have differing opinions. Like, well, what does it mean to be president? And I think it's important that to, to note for those who aren't aware, there are actually very specific rules and laws surrounding what that means. So mm-hmm. that said, that said, go ahead, Brennan, why don't you kick us off and start with whatever you want to start with? Well, I think the first thing that I'm going to start with, and I think the first thing that anybody should potentially start with, with the discussion of Obama is the Affordable Care Act and the expansion of Medicare that covered millions of people who were formerly uninsured and people who were getting off of their parents' insurance until the age of 26. I think that those, I think that that will be his number, Obama will be remembered as that president and that I think is his key stone uh, political movement in the eight years of his in office. And I think that the, the coverage of those millions of people who were formerly uninsured, the expansion of Medicare, uh, and the move toward America potentially, and, and we'll see what happens in the future, but potentially moving into a, a direction of having a single-payer system, I think will be, was his greatest sort of benefit uh, as a president to, to many, many, many people. Okay. And, and, and again, if you're a listener to this podcast, you know that we pride ourselves on trying to be as organic and honest and as unprepared and as unskillful and as untalented and as unentertaining as possible. And I think we live <laughs> up to that each and every show. But as it relates to specifically what I'm about to say here, we didn't really discuss the format of this beyond what I've already said. So nope. um, let's, uh, and I'm being forced into this because you led with that. So let's play this this way. You make a point and I respond, and then I make a point and you respond and back and forth. Yep, I think that sounds okay. great. Um, so, uh, because I had on my list of reasons that Obama is the worst president in history, and it's going to be a- ACA. <laughs> Absolutely, and in fact, the way I, knew, I the way I, I knew we were going to lead off with this. <laughs> yeah, well, I, this was my point four. So, and I described it as the disaster known as Obamacare, and I'm going to be just. I'm going to try to be as succinct as you. When one, I want to also acknowledge that what you just said, there's absolutely some truth in that. I do believe that there was some good that resulted from this, and, uh, and, and you nailed it, which is there are people who now have health coverage who didn't before. Now, we can argue back and forth as to whether that in and of itself is proper in, you know, in a democracy. Is it, is it the democracy? Is it my job or your job, Brendan, to... Uh, to to fund or subsidize somebody else's health care cost is it? Yep. I don't know, and I'm not. I'm not asking. I don't want you to respond. I'm just saying that's the question. Yeah, and my but, yep right there wasn't saying yes to the answer to the question. It was saying yep to that. That is the question. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Right. And I knew that, but thanks for clarifying. So that said, here are my here are my reasons for for viewing Obamacare or the ACA as a disaster. First is the lies that were were made to get it passed. And, you know, again, I don't want to go into all the detail. There will be links in the blog post, but there's a video I found where Jonathan Gruber, who is generally viewed as, quote, the architect of Obamacare, three different places where he's on video talking about how they intentionally misled the American people to get the law passed. And and, and you probably know what I'm talking about here, Brennan, but he says things that are just so patently 
I mean, it's so it's so black and white where he basically said, well, we had to lie because the American people wouldn't have passed it, wouldn't have accepted it if we told them the truth. And I'm, of course, you know, I'm summarizing that, but that's really what he's saying. Um, and, and you know, he, he's caught red-handed in that. Secondly is Nancy Pelosi's infamous, we need to pass this to see what's in it statement, which will go down in history. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> not, to mention the, not to mention the lies about, you know, costs won't increase, this will reduce costs, and I've got links that I'm going to include in the blog to various, you know, places where there's support for the, the fact that, you know, costs have increased. Uh, of course they increased. Nobody suggested they wouldn't increase, but that, that in one case, one thing I found talks about how, in at least in one study shows that Obamacare absolutely increased the rate at which uh, premiums have gone up. Um, and then there's the, you know, you can keep your own doctor. How many people found out that wasn't true? The disaster surrounding the launch of the website, that was an issue in and of itself, if you recall. It was a yeah. big deal. Yeah, 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 it was. Then you have the aspects of penalizing people who can't afford it, which is just crazy on its face. Face, that you're penalizing people because they can't afford something. I mean, even the staunchest liberal, you know, if we, if we weren't talking about this issue specifically, if I just said, hey, what do you think about a government that penalizes its people because they can't afford to buy something that they're legally required to buy? I think most people would find that ridiculous. Uh, moving on, you know, big insurers are bailing out. In fact, the nation's largest health insurer recently announced that they were pulling out of almost all of Obamacare. Um, you know, costs continue to spiral out of control, and uh, I'm skipping past a whole bunch of stuff because I just want to t- don't want to take the time to go into it. But uh, here's something that's really current. The government this week, and I'm quoting, the government this week said premiums in 2017 for the most popular plans on the federal exchanges will surge by an average of 25%. That's three times as large as the 2016 increase. And, and also, as I'm sure you know, Brendan, right or wrong, depending upon your side of this, you know, uh, Obamacare is already in the process of being repealed. I mean, there are, you know, the uh, bills are being introduced to repeal it as we speak. Yep. And I don't mean to suggest that that in and of itself proves it's a bad thing, but there's not too much of an outcry that that's happening because I just think so many people, and I don't want to get off on all this anecdotal stuff because, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. all the people that I and you know together don't represent 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of the population of America. But I can say that among my group of people, rates have just gone out of control. My coverage has gone way up in terms of its cost. My deductible has gone way up because I can't afford the premiums without increasing my deductible. So um, I'll stop there in the interest of, you know, allowing us to move forward. But I do respect the points you made there, but I personally view uh, Obamacare as, in the end, a, a disaster. I do think it will be, as you said appropriately, it will be the number one thing people think about when they think of him. Oh, yeah. And let me respond to a couple of those just as a kind of maybe redirect sure. in the one, two, three of this maybe examination cross and then redirect. Um, sure. The, the, the couple of things that I want to mention are there's a lot of – so Repo- Obamacare, if, it, if Obamacare is repealed in its entirety, um, which is probably not going to happen. Um, I agree. It, it probably will not happen. In its entirety, it will not be. There will be parts of it that I think will be repealed. And actually, most Americans support that, which I think is kind of interesting, um, that there's sort of bipartisan agreement that some parts of it need to be changed. Uh, 
Which I, th- I actually kind of found fascinating. That's one strange point at which Obama's presidency was not divisive. <laughs> is that we're all kind of equally unhappy with this. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, the point is that... Um, but some of the parts that, that I think did arrive and aren't going to get changed, I think, like the, the increase of Medicare, the bolstering of, of, I think, Medicare, the protections that prevent... Uh, uh, pre-existing conditions, I think, uh, and of course the um, the uh, the the staying on employer um, insurance plans. I think uh, for for children until they're 26, or for young adults until they're 26. I think we're all meaningful, and I think that the most important part of this, which is that this was the this was a first attempt in the history of the United States to actually have this debate to try to answer the question that you just posed, which is, do we have a responsibility as Americans to our fellow citizens' uh, health care? Do we, tr- and, you know, is health a public good? And if it is, what responsibility do we individually have to, to trying to contribute to that? Um, and that question is not answered, and maybe it'll never be. And maybe the answer to that question, as the Americans will all decide, actually, we have a very minimal one. Get your hand out of my pocket. I'm going to look out for number one, which is fine, too. But which is, it's just interesting because that didn't even happen until Obamacare was sort of passed. And it's not, um, I think, trying to judge it against the concept of perfection is a little ridiculous. But I will also agree that uh, with what you said which is that the, the, there is a lot of evidence, especially amongst your group of people, that it's really the costs are really going through the roof for a lot of people who admittedly can, I mean, like I would say you and your constituency can afford it, but it's not, uh, I mean, I don't know that, but it's also really. Mm-hmm. No, actually, you don't know that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm saying, I'm not saying that as a, you can do that, so do it. I'm saying that as a, um, I, I, I think that were we to sit, if you can, and I don't know that you can, but I assume that you and your constituency can, uh, were we to sit down and say, is this worth, is paying an extra whatever a month, and I don't know what that is, worth uh, making sure that people who literally cannot get it uh, get any health care, could get some health care, um, is that worth doing it? And that, that question, I think, at least we're posed with it now, which we weren't previously. Uh, I agree with that. I agree with that. And we need to cut this off because we have so many other points to mm-hmm. cover that if we go this yep. deep on each one, we'll never make it. But I do yep. want to make one, just I, I have to respond to something you said there, which is, you know, and I'm shorthanding it, but basically me and mine can afford it. Well, I just want you to know that the truth of the matter is that I made decisions in a business that I own where you used to work, where I stopped having employees because if I if I had the employees, I would have to provide insurance for them, and my business wasn't prof- profitable enough to afford that. Yep. A friend of mine who you've met, mm-hmm. who I won't name, who employs, I don't know, 50 people, he's had to do the same thing where he's taken people from full-time to part-time to circumvent the law, not because he's a dick, but because he simply doesn't make enough money to afford what he'd be required to pay under the law. Mm. So there's there's that element, too, that people don't talk enough about, which is, you know, it, it, perhaps it was well-intentioned, but... Small businesses, many small businesses don't make nearly as much money as other people think they do. And this is where I think a lack of business acumen 
uh, affects a government potentially and how it makes decisions. But but I'm getting way off point. I just wanted to say that there's that other element that there's a cost there, which is sure these people got insurance they didn't have before, but these other people that had insurance now don't yeah. because etc. So all right, so um, a g- good first point there. Um, my my next point, which was my first point, is. And I wanted to lead off with something that I thought was really um, black and white in terms of its accuracy, you know, as opposed to opinion. And I just have a, a list of things, uh, and I'm, I'm calling this the overall toxic effect on the economic foundation of America. Mm-hmm. That's, to me, something that it, it, there's so much confusion and so much ignorance around this point. And it was this the fact that I led with this was caused by... You know, I, 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 we put up that uh, that meme on on our Facebook wall, a knock for you about you know dead uh, legacy walking uh, question mark about Obama, which has gotten thousands of yeah you know a, of, a lot, of likes a lot of and views and shares. Yeah, I mean, uh, as usual, tons of reaction to that, and I've seen a lot of people commenting and just saying stuff, and I saw a gentleman who was supporting Obama, and he just started rattling off these economic stats that were so wrong, and so. That prompted me to, to lead with this. And, and the first is that when Obama took office in 2009, the, the, the U.S. debt was $10.6 trillion. By the time he walks out the door, it's going to be $20 trillion. So it's nearly, you know, almost doubled during his eight years. That's massive. That is a huge and puts incredible financial strain on the country in terms of, of just paying interest. And it's just it, a household... Uh, you know, if you ran your household like that, you'd be bankrupt. And and the only reason the U.S. isn't bankrupt is because we're the most powerful economic country in the world. And I can't explain it all. And quite frankly, I don't understand it all. I'm not going to lie. But the point is, <laughs> individuals couldn't live like this. It's financial recklessness that's not sustainable. The second point under my economic list is that we have become what one source I found called food stamp nation. When I read this stat, it blew my mind. I did not know this, that um, right now, roughly one-seventh of the entire U.S. population is on food stamps. Did you know that? No, that's one-seventh? One-seventh. And here, 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 getting more specific. So when Obama went into office, there were 28 million Americans on food stamps, and the country was paying around $38 billion a year to finance that. And this is as of 2015, so this is actually about a year-old information. But in 2015, the number of individuals is up to 46 million, and the cost is 74 billion. So again, not quite a, a, a doubling, but almost a doubling of cost uh, associated with that. That's incredible to me that one-seventh of the population would be on food stamps. This next point will really hit home with you because I think it it may affect you personally, or if it doesn't, then you, certainly people you know. And again, this blew my mind even more than the previous point, that when Obama took office, student loans, student loan debt in the aggregate stood at $146.6 billion. It's now in the, I'm sorry, by the fourth quarter of 2015, again, a year-old information, that number had risen to 945.6, from 147 to 946. That's a 645% increase. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I mean, 945, I mean, you, we're approaching a trillion dollars. Oh. Yeah. A trillion that's, dollars. This is the, that's the cost of education these days, man. 
Right. And, and I'm not laying that all at the feet of Obama. That's not fair. But I am saying that's a crazy increase. And <clears throat> I don't see a justification. You know, why have education con- costs gone up so radically? Again, I'm not, oh, man, I'm that's not a whole saying other it's a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> it is. is a, that is a whole other episode we could do. It is, but to be honest with you, like if I were choosing uh, issues to attack, I probably would put that near the top of my list of things to look at because my personal feeling, and I want to be clear that much of this is being said out of ignorance, it seems to me that there's not a real reason for that increase. Why why should education costs go up that much? What's fundamentally changed in terms of how a college runs as a college. There's no good reason for that. Uh, and I think... Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot that we could unpack there, but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll and, let let's, that stand let's not, for the moment. Yeah, yeah. let's not, because there's just too many points here. And I'm nearing the end of this, but uh, bear with me. So the next thing is um, healthcare costs. I, and I know we touched on this a second ago, and I don't want to say the same thing over again, but I did find something interesting in the Wall Street Journal that shows how uh, how how middle-income households in America spending on what they call basic needs. And this is from 2007 to 2014. So this is before Obama, you know, a year before Obama went into office through 2014. And what it shows is how how, cha- how um, spending habits have changed across all these categories of what they're calling basic needs, mm-hmm. which include health care, food at home, housing, transportation, food, food away from home, and clothing. Every one of those categories has gone down except healthcare. Healthcare went up 24.8%. All the others went down. And clothing, for example, went down 18.8%. What does that tell you? What it tells you is the healthcare costs have gone up so much that people can't spend money on those other things. They have to spend it on healthcare. And I think that sucks. Then the final point I'm going to make here about under this you know, this economic point, and I was intending for this to be my biggest point, but it actually ends up being not my biggest point here, is, you know, the, quote, true unemployment labor participation rate. And when Obama, or in January of 2009, there were 80.5 million Americans not participating in the labor force. And in May of 2016, that number is now 94.7. So there's 14 million more Americans who, who are, are not in the not, labor force, not yeah. getting jobs, not, yeah, and, not, and let me just, not let me, even trying to get jobs. Well, let me not, not necessarily, but let me finish this because I want to. I want to try to be as objective as I can. I went into that point thinking I was going to find a lot better stuff than I found because you know people throw around, and we've talked about this in other podcasts. You know, uh, not as a primary point. What is the real unemployment rate? And uh, I, I, I ended up finding something on Politifact. You know, which I believe leans a little bit left, and in fact, the, the 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 specific article I found was denouncing Donald Trump's assertion that real unemployment was like forty percent. Mm. And so, I wanted to end this point with this point, which is that Politifact basically comes out and says, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but the real unemployment rate is probably more like sixteen point four, which is way higher than anything reported by the government. Yeah. And, and in my opinion, that's way high. And, you know, and, and let's not even focus on, in, on that one so much. But if we go back to the previous points I made about, about like, particularly. Well, that would explain your food stamps point. If, one, exactly. if 16% of Americans is, is exactly. unemployed, there, by, that's, there should be more people on food stamps even. Exactly. That's exactly the point I was about to make. So 
so again, that's my summary of you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there, and you can't possibly react to all of it. But I think that you know my point there is simply here are some indicators, and there's a whole bunch more I could have could have used. Mm-hmm. I tried to pick ones that I thought were powerful and somewhat black and white. Not all of them, I admit, but I think that that paints a different picture than what you hear coming out of the Obama administration about you know, and many liberals who talk about oh, the Obama recovery and all this, and I just don't think it's true. Yeah. I don't think I don't think it's, I don't think it's, you know, I'm not saying it's an unmitigated disaster. I'm just saying I don't think this is a strength of his, of his, of his tenure. Well, let me respond to just a handful of those because, uh, and, and uh, I, I think, um, you know, again, like in this debate, I'm, re- I'm representing Obama kicking ass, Obama rah, 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 right. all the way. Um, and I, I will say this, that under Obama, there has been a focus on the creation of new jobs that are in high-tech manufacturing for things like solar, things like wind, um, uh, what is the uh, water power called? I forget. Uh, hydro, 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 yeah, hydro, hydroelectric power. That, um, and, and then an increase in a refocus or, or an attempt at a refocus a few years ago at the... Uh, at the crumbling infrastructure of the United States. And there's a lot of people I knew, um, just due to my age group, who were getting employed in jobs that were essentially re-road building and things like this, and moving around the country, um, going after getting back into uh, the creation of, you know, re-stealing bridges and things like this, uh, which which I think was, was important and should not be overlooked because it was something that, that needed to be done. The second thing is that um, if you believe Nancy Pelosi, which I know you don't, but some people do and should potentially, uh, six trillion of the debt that Obama has added in the last eight years is, was essentially due to TARP packages that were passed before he even took office. That this was this this debt was spoken for um, in order to recover the economy from Bush era uh, collapses. So I mean, you can agree with that or don't agree with that in uh, whichever way you'd like to, but it's uh, it's. That's some of uh, of that debt was spoken for before he even took office, um, and a lot of that also you could potentially say a lot of that debt spending. And I don't have any of this in front of me, but a lot of that debt spending could be attributed to the fact that we are essentially engaged in two front wars in two different places, half a world away, that uh, were requiring the continual uh, funding of. And I think that, that that didn't stop with uh, when Obama took office. I mean, uh, the guy didn't inherit a situation that would allow for a hell of a lot of fiscal responsibility to begin with, um, to just to try to defend against uh, sort of what you've just put up there. No, I, those, are, those are potentially some good points, and I can't refute them because I don't have evidence to agree or disagree. So I'll just have to, you know, I'll just have to check it out after the fact. But, um, you know good points for consideration and i and certainly the tar thing like i that never occurred to me and i could see how that might be true um but the fact that the 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 source you're quoting you just chopped off one of your legs as soon as you stood on it <laughs> which was as nancy Pelosi. yeah but i mean like look yeah. I'm, I'm saying that i mean I'm, I'm saying that she's famously quoted as saying that but it doesn't mean yeah, that and, she's and, 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 incorrect and I mean, those are, maybe that's true i mean just looking up just with a quick look here the history of debt in the united states the history of the united states public debt you can look at 2001 to 20 versus 2011 um and they it cites a number of different things in the article by far the number one 
cost of directly attributable debt to the debt during that period of time was economic changes uh, increasing, including lower than expected tax revenue and higher safety net spending due to the recession, which essentially is, I think, TARP related, uh, mm. TARP related um, saving of banks and, and things like this. The second, which is rather fascinating, is Bush era tax cuts. Uh, interestingly, which is $1.6 trillion that added to the national debt. Um, the war <clears throat> in Afghanistan and Iraq actually came in under that debt, which is $1.4 trillion. I, found, I find that interesting. I did not know that Bush air tax cuts were higher than the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq. I would have thought those would have been much higher. Um, interesting. Ob- Obama's stimulus is at the bottom of the list with adding a measly $1 trillion to the, uh, <laughs> to the national debt. <laughs> Shit, I got one trillion and quarters in my couch. I don't know about you. I certainly know that uh, Young Jeezy does. Young Jeezy, yes. All right. Well, so I think we've 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 attacked that point. Let's move on to your next uh, pro Obama point. All right. Here's my next pro Obama point: Iran deal, not making a nuclear bomb without firing a shot. At one point during the Bush era, especially uh, Iran was my generation was very concerned. I was in my uh, early twenties at the time that in late teens that Iran was going to be the next front and that that front was going to turn into a really serious, I mean, like not that Iraq and Afghanistan aren't serious, but a much more serious war than Iraq or Afghanistan and that Iran was going to be a, uh, a, a, a battleground. There was going to be boots on the ground. We were going to have a draft. Um, we even had, a, there was even talk in Congress of a draft potentially in, in preparation for what might become a war with Iran. Um, and a lot of it had to do with the same weapons of mass destruction conversation and concept. And the fact that he was able to, to work out a deal with Iran uh, that fell, fell under a, a specific set of criteria that ensures to us and the world that they are not going to be producing nuclear weapons but can produce nuclear reactors, uh, I think, it, without firing a shot, is, I think, a, a huge victory. I'm, tr- well, I'm sorry. I had to pick myself up off the floor there. <laughs> well, let me let me let me let me let me read to you some of these sanctions that were in place on the new uh, Iran deal. Sanctions on missile technology and in, in conventional weapons, which is pre the deal. Uh, terrorist sanctions that identify Iran as a state sponsor of terror. I mean, we have, so it's like I mean, like we know this stuff. None of this is changing. Targeted sanctions on anyone connected with Iran's support of terror. An authority to Iran's development of the ballistic, uh, to target Iran's development ballistic missiles. So we have authority in order to target any programs that we see moving into those sort of directions. Uh, And uh, authority to target Iran's human rights abuses and censorship. And finally, authority to sanction Iran's destabilizing regional activities, including Syria and Yemen. So... I feel like in order to ex- this exchange, uh, the exchange that is the, the, the authority that the U.S. Um, was delegated from Iran in the deal, I think strengthens our position with them and I think also moves us into a better position uh, potentially with, uh, with, with other Middle Eastern allies. That's my assessment of the deal. And the fact that, a shot, that, that we did not have a war, I feel like, is a big deal. Uh, well, th- this was my point number six, and my heading on it was dealings with the number one state sponsor of terror in the world, Iran. So, uh, again, this is one where I want to acknowledge right up front, because I've actually studied this point 
a lot more than some of the other points we're going to talk about today. Okay. And I say that not because I think I'm an expert on this, because I don't think that. But I say it well, because... we know that I'm certainly not. I say it because I recognize that this is not as black and white as I want to make it sound in the next two or three minutes as I make my points here. Sure. So I'm, I'm acknowledging that right up front, that this is, you know, this is, this is very complicated and convoluted. And I've read, I'll say at least 20, at least 20 different articles on the topic. And for, and I want to acknowledge that for everyone I can find that says this is the worst deal in the history of the world, I can find one or more that will say the opposite. Okay, so I want to acknowledge <laughs> what? Nothing. Go ahead. <laughs> I, so I want to acknowledge that, but I, I just want to give you my shorthand on this because this is so complex that to really properly discuss it would require at least one podcast, and we don't have that kind of time. But what what I do want to say is that, you know, there, there's a history to our relationship with. I, with Iran, and also another point that I'm going to make ultimately, uh, you know, our, our number one, our number one ally in the region, which is Israel, mm-hmm. and Iran has been on record as during the totality of my lifetime, as openly and publicly stating that one of their reasons for existing is to annihilate literally and destroy literally Israel. That is a very real threat that has not gone away, and. So the the what I'm getting to here ultimately is that th- this Iran deal it legitimizes Iran's ability to to work with nuclear materials at a minimum, um, and again I'm grossly condensing large paragraphs to try to give a semblance of a point here, but the many of the sanctions or the potential sanctions. Or the, for example, the uh, the provisions included in the deal that that deal with things like inspections of facilities, they're all not all, but enough of them are weak or toothless so as to basically be non-existent. And so the alternative view here is that the end result of that deal specifically is that it makes it a whole lot easier for Iran to get to the ultimate point of creating a weapon and doing who knows what with it. And if, you know, anyone that would trust that country with a nuclear weapon is insane, is absolutely insane. And I understand, because I know what you're going to say in response to this is, no, 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 the whole point of this is to prevent that. I know. But if you dig deep enough into it and you read enough about it, you'll see that there's a very strong argument that can be made, and I'm not making it very well right now, and I want to concede that, but that this is exactly the opposite. Not only that, but, you know, there's all these peripheral things related to that, and you, and you referenced a couple of them, but things like, you know, assets being unfrozen and um, Iran being able to, to, to deal, to do business with other countries more freely than they were, you know, sanctions precluded that in the past. And there's all this money that they're now making that they weren't making before. Not to mention another point that I was going to get to here, I'll just make it now while we're here, is that, you know, there's this, there were two different payments made to, from the U.S. to Iran. Um, one was made in January of 2016 in which $400 million in, in, uh, 
in cash equivalents, it wasn't U.S. currency, it was other stuff, mm-hmm. uh, was sent in a, in a swap for four innocent Americans that were being held, <laughs> held by this wonderful, peaceful country that we're doing, you know, <laughs> treaties with. And then uh-huh. later, another $1.3 billion was sent supposedly to settle a decades-old dispute about something that no one believes. And so the point is, $1.7 billion was sent from this country to that country, which is just another issue related to this larger thing we're talking about. But it's like we're dealing with this country in a manner that just doesn't make any sense to me. And I know that point transcends the deal itself, but this was, you know, this was a, the point I was going to make uh, later. So I might as well just finish the point while I'm here, and it'll save us some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got all this stuff that I can quote, but again, I don't want to take more time to 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 read all this minutia. But I just think that we have, under the Obama administration, we have, at a minimum, you'll have to agree with this, we have legitimized Iran itself in a way that it wasn't before the Obama administration. Before the Obama administration, Iran was the most, the most you know, hated and, in my opinion, rightfully so, country in the world from an American's perspective. I mean, there's history between us and, you know, the death to America. How many times have you seen on the news where, you know, American flags are being burned and it's in Tehran and, you know, the whole hostage crisis and Jimmy Carter and there's, there's just all this history there. And it's not like yeah, they've come even, around. Yeah, I mean, what's what's weird about this? So I'm not disagreeing with that. I think that you're. I think that that's um, that is the 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 idea that Iran was the most hated country. I think that what's odd about it is that previous to the history of uh, the the uprising um, and the uh, the Ayatollah and all of this, Iran was actually a re- really modern country that had really good relations with the West, which is I think rather I know. fascinating. I know, I know, I know that. In fact, I found something just randomly, not even related to any research I was doing. I just stumbled upon this, and it was all these photos that were taken, I think, in the 60s mm-hmm. of Tehran, and it was like, it looked like it could have been New York. Yeah, I mean, a, it's people a, were dressed a, really cool. a modern and, Western country, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, w- women didn't have to wear, you know, headscarves and burqas and all of this. It was only after the Ayatollah and the installment. There's a really good narrative about it called Persepolis, which is a graphic novel written by a woman who lived there during, through that period of time and then moved to Europe and ended up writing the story. Anyway, it's fascinating in case you ever want to sort of listen to it. But, like, I mean, I, I would be fascinated to read the articles you're talking about because, you know, basically from the description of the deal, it looks like the uh, the pathways to getting sort of enough weapons-grade plutonium to try to create a bomb and then doing it outside of the purview of international inspection uh, would be impossible. Maybe not impossible, but really, really, really highly, highly, highly challenging. And I think that, you know, we could could say, and we could, could, I mean, we could go back and forth on this, and maybe this is a liberal... You know, one of these points that liberals say that conservatives go, okay, man, you're living in a dream world. But I think that the first step maybe to trying to restore relations with someone who you want to to, to have be on good terms is by treating them, the, the things that they say to you seriously and taking them at their word. Uh, and, uh, I mean, again, maybe we, we disagree on that point or that you could say that that's foolish. Um, but, I mean, Iran has an interest in producing... Uh, nuclear power in the same way the rest of the world and the rest of the first world was interested in creating nuclear power. Um, and maybe we should treat them 
sort of seriously, and and that is a step toward restoring sort of relations with them. If it were any other context in any other country in any other situation, I would agree with you. I just don't hear because of, you know, as you said, maybe we should take them at their word. This is the country that has never backed off of its statement that it wants to annihilate Israel. Should we yeah. not take them at their word for that? Well, and we could go. Yeah, we could. That's a that could be a whole other uh, podcast as well to talk about the situation with with Israel and the Middle East. Well, and I'm gonna the West. I'm gonna come back to it. So let's just hold off because I'm coming back to it. Got it. All right. So I think it's is it my turn to lead. Yep. Okay. So this next one really is for me the one that, that personally, this is why I sincerely believe that Obama is the worst president in the history of the United States. All right, let's and my hear title, it. My title for this <laughs> is Obama will go down as the great divider when he had the best opportunity in U.S. history to unite us, specifically because of the fact that he was at least partially African-American. Um, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fast again. Uh, I'm going to go through this list real, real quick. Um, are you there? Yep. Sorry. Um, so here's my list. Major points are he, Obama consistently comments on incendiary and inflammatory situations before he has all the facts. And in every case... The comments he makes increase tensions and division rather than diffusing. Second is he always seems to side with the people who end up being proven wrong in a situation, Michael Brown, Michael Brown's parents, etc. He sides with criminals and elevates them and pays them a level of respect he almost never affords the police, as an example. He consistently uses words of division and disunity, and I'm going to give some specific examples of that. He constantly plays the race card. And, uh, you know, when you think about it for a second, that the president of the United States and the highest law enforcement officer in the country, either in the case of Eric Holder or later Loretta Lynch, are African-American. And, you know, it's just, it, it just, it just incenses me. And then he Oh, I kind of already said this, but he, he only seems to comment on situations where minorities are wronged. So if, you know, if a, a white kid gets attacked, like just happened in, uh, was it was Chicago, right? Where the, the that challenged kid was uh, shown on. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was right here. Yeah. So has he commented on that yet? I mean, if that had, if the roles had been reversed, he would have been out making a speech that night. So. Let me just finish here because I've got some other points to make. So we, we meaning me and you, Brennan, we've we did a, 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 a we've done several podcasts that we've never published, and in in one of those at least we talked about some of this stuff. But you know, I want to talk about what happened in Baltimore and Ferguson and also in Dallas, and specifically I want to just talk about the comments that Obama made in either the aftermath or right before those situations, respectively. And, and remember I told you about this analysis that I did where I went through when I actually analyzed what Obama said in one of his speeches? Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, where he, he does say a few things that sort of sound appropriate, like, you know, I condemn these actions. But then he goes on, and he always seems to finish with these points that if you're, if you're on the side that says, hey, the police are fucking us over, 
it throws gasoline on that fire, and it and in the end it creates division. So I'm gonna. These are actual quotes, and this is short because I went through and trimmed it down as best I could. So this is in the context of Baltimore, and this is a quote. I think there are police departments that have to do some soul searching. I think there are some communities that have to do some soul searching. But I think we as a country have to do some soul searching. That is not new. So again, right there, if I'm not saying he doesn't have a point. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's not some kernel of truth in what he's saying. What you're saying is, is that he hasn't said you can't fucking attack people. And you can't burn down buildings because you're angry. Right. And I think this gets back to this gets back to, you know, the leading the thing I led with in terms of what's the job of the president. Um, I my own words, the job of the president is to do what's best for the majority of the country. When I say majority, I don't mean majority versus minority. I mean, for the greatest number of people, whoever they are. Well, for, and the, in my, for the union. Yeah. Yeah, for the and, and just for the greater good. So, you know, to, to to stand on a soapbox and be a civil rights leader, which is what I see over and over with Obama, again, I'm not disrespecting that there's some kernel of truth in much of what he says. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that if the greater good is for us to be united and not you know, having racial tension and not having cops killed, then I think it's better to focus in on the the good things rather than the bad. So let me just go on. That's what he said in the case of Baltimore. In the case of Ferguson, um, he said, Ferguson has a choice to make. It can reach an agreement with federal officials to fix a clearly broken and racially biased system, or it can refuse and face a possible lawsuit. He went on to say, what happened in Ferguson is not a complete aberration. It turns out they weren't just making it up. It was happening. The lesson for police departments around the country is that when they get enough complaints about unfair treatment of African Americans or other minority groups, you've got to listen, to pay attention. And uh, and then he goes on to say... Uh, the job now is for police departments and communities to work together to solve the problems and not get up in the cynicism of, oh, it's never going to change. Everything's racist, Obama said. So stop and think about that. So in the, you know, in the first part of the last thing I said there, so he says, oh, it's, you know, police and communities have to work together and not get caught up in cynicism, that everything's racist. So it's like, you see what the point I'm making there, and you and I had this conversation before about the omission—you know, things said versus not said—and mm-hmm. and you know, it's like to say, well, you know, I think it's important to work together uh, to stop the fact that you're raping babies. <laughs> so it's like, okay, it's good that we're going to work together, but I mean, what did you just—you know—it's like he he just he gives people who are waiting to hear, um, you know waiting to hear some encouraging and uniting words gives them reason to still feel pissed off and disenfranchised and much more likely to go out and burn down a building or kill a cop. And as one of the quotes I read in this context said, someone wrote this, instead of celebrating America's historic progress after voters elected its first black president in 2008, Obama chose to criticize the country and ignited race riots the country has not seen in 40 years since the 60s. And and I agree with that. And then I got one more big point to make here, or actually it's a couple more, but here's a quote from the context of Dallas. Now, here 
we did an entire show on few that we never published just about, about Dallas. the Dallas shootings. Yeah. Yeah. And the, here's the key point that many people will forget is that Obama spoke the day, the day that those cops were killed. He spoke and said, what's clear that these fatal shootings, and he was referring to these two African-Americans that were killed. One was in, I believe, Louisiana, and one was in Minnesota, okay? And so he said this, what's clear is that these fatal shootings are not isolated incidents. They are symptomatic of the broader challenges within our criminal justice system, the racial disparities that appear across the system year after year, and the resulting lack of trust that exists between law enforcement and too many of the communities they serve, okay? So that night, those cops were killed. Mm -hmm. And, I mean... It's just, it's just, he says these things that, again, if I'm pissed off at white America and I feel I've been wronged by cops, and again, I am acknowledging and not denying that racism still exists in this country. I would never insult anyone by suggesting otherwise. But you have to look at the big arc of things and the fact that, as that quote a minute ago I read, Obama was elected president in this fucking racist country. Yeah. A black man was elected. And not only that, but look at how things have improved. Again, they're not perfect. I'm not saying they are. But for people to get all up in arms about racism today or last year or the year before, it's kind of like, you know, you're, 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 you're punishing a child uh, for doing something when he was four years old and he's now 52. Well, it's I like, mean, it is an, all right. So let me, let me jump back in a rebuttal for that because again, I think this is a point at which, you know, you bring up, wait, uh, l- let ahead, me, let ahead, me, I just have a couple of really fast points and then I'll be done. All right. Okay. Then he invites black lives matter to the white house and says, quote, they do outstanding work. I'll link to that video. And he, he goes on to say that they, he says this specifically, led the recent protests and shining a light on the injustices that are happening. And then here's a key thing that he's never acknowledged. The New York Times came out with a highly publicized study, you and I talked about this, that said that there is evidence of bias in police use of force, but not in shootings. That was published in the New York Times and based on a study done by an African-American professor at Harvard, which is where Obama went to law school. Well, actually, technically, that's not correct. It did have a bias, and it was you were more likely to get shot by the police if you were white. uh, Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you. And then, then, um, uh, so, and then the final comment I'll make, I'm skipping past a few because I don't want this to go on any longer, but I'll just speak for myself. I have never felt a, a greater level of, t- of racial tension than I do uh, right now. And, and, you know, it's crazy to me that I would say that because my entire life has been decreasing, 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 decreasing. I never felt racial tension at all. And I live in, the, you know, we talked about this in a previous podcast, you know, where you used to live, where I now live is a really, it's very diverse racially. You know, we oh, have a... Oh, very much, yeah. And I mean, it, huge African-American a, population, yeah, huge, yeah. R- the, the largest Arab population outside yeah. of the Middle East. There are, there are Eastern Europeans, there are, there are Asians. I mean, this is a, this is a true Yeah, it's a real melting, melting pot, pot in Metro Detroit, yeah. yeah. And I never felt racial tension in my life until the last two or three years. 
Okay, yeah, now I, I'm done. Okay, so I can appreciate all of that. And again, this is another point at which you, you're, you know, if 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 I wasn't uh, assigned to, to right, right, defend right, this right, position, right. You, you wouldn't get a, a hard pushback from me on it because I. This is a point that I think that I more that I I you and I are, are in a lot of agreement. But let me put it this way: you know, o- Obama's got a challenging job, and just to like put this put to defend him a bit, Obama has a challenging job uh, for a number of reasons. The first is that as the first black president in the history of the United States, he's sim- his words have symbolic meaning beyond. Uh, simply addressing an, an issue. I mean, I mean, beyond a normal other president. That is, if if Obama were I agree were were white uh, and was addressing issues, his words would not carry the same weight they have simply because of his identity. Um, and I think that 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 makes his position very challenging because whatever he's going to say is going to be colored, uh, for lack of a better term, in one way or right. another. And. I think that the challenge he's also dealing with is the fact that America has a legacy of racism that didn't just end. It didn't, it's not like we all woke up on Monday morning and everything was better. It was like, it was better some places. It was, be, it was worse some places. It was, um, it, you know, I mean, all the way up until I remember even as a child watching uh, news reports uh, about still racist uh, lending or leasing policies for apartments and, and housing. Um, that were going on that undercover people were were uh, basically un- yeah, uncovering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are things that I'm talking about was taking place in the 90s, you know, which we think of as an extremely progressive sort of era, um, especially in terms of race relations. And the data speaks to that. Like, I mean, rather than, I, I, with the exception of the, uh, the, the, the um, Harvard uh, poll that you were talking about before, um, I think it was a Harvard poll because it was by a black professor and it was, and it did show and it was cited yeah, it in the was. New York Times. Yeah. Besides that poll, I mean, there is a lot of data to show that policing is 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 ha- breaks down heavily on on racial lines. I mean, the Ferguson is a good case of that. That eighty eight percent of the cases in which the department in Ferguson used force, um, it was used against African Americans. In all of the fourteen canine bite incidents, which uh, and w- for which racial information was available, the, for- the person bitten was black. And in, in the Ferguson court cases, and this is true of many other departments as well, African Americans are 68% less likely than others to have their case dismissed by a municipal judge. So if you're going to go to court, you're going to get a better, you're going to get a, you're not going to get it dismissed. You're going to get a harsher sentence. Um, and what's fascinating is that blacks accounted for 92% of all cases in which an arrest warrant was issued. That's, that's just in Ferguson, but that's not, that's maybe a, um, one of the worst examples, but it's not outside of the norm of example. It's not like Ferguson's terrible in the rest of the United States. Everything's just honky dory. So part of what I think is, ha- has happened, and, and I, I do agree with you that Obama will be held responsible for this by history, but I think that we have to temper that with the fact that he is in a very, very difficult position, which is that there's an underlying racial tension that has always gone on in the United States since the civil rights movement. And that tension has played itself out in a number of different ways. Um, it's been between black, essentially blacks and whites. It's been between us and it's, ha- and it's been in each of our own communities separately. And those narratives have, have gone on since that time. And what I think no one realized when Obama took office or no one realized what was going to happen was that all of that suddenly would have a, 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 a space to, to sort of move into. And it's almost as if Obama in office 
um, became a, a tuning fork for all of this stuff that had just lied beneath the surface for such a long time. Now, when, when Obama took office, what I expected to see happen was a lot of white uh, racist, white supremacist people coming out and condemning the president. Um, I'm unsurprised at the idea that probably that happened. What I am surprised at is that I actually don't hear much about that. Um, I would, you would think that you would hear a lot of that in the media. What is more so if, seems if, to, if it were actually happening, maybe, but I don't know that it is. So I'm sure it's happening somewhere. Like, I mean, I'm uh, sure it's not interesting. Because the media doesn't report it because it's not interesting. It's what? What are, you know what I mean. Haters gonna no. hate. <laughs> no, white haters gonna hate. I don't agree with hate. that at all. But what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is that the, it, it, the point that I'm making is that I would have expected to see more of that. I did not see much of that. Um, and instead, did you just say? Did you just say Nazi? Yeah, what's counterfactually happened is that the, the opposite has been true, and which is I think that the difference is this, and what Obama dealt with and what, we, what, what I think the, what he was unprepared for, admittedly, and I don't know if any president could, and I don't know if this could happen unless we had a black president, um, is that the racial tension that spilled over was essentially from the black community. But I think that there was a lot of latent uh, hatred that was within the black community that never had felt like it had a space to even exist in anymore. And now it feels like it does. And this is going to sound nuts, but I actually think that's a win. And here's why I think it's a win for Obama, because I think that th that, that either never would have come out or would have underlied and ossified and become worse in the black community. And I think that the potential now for, for what, what we can see as reconciliation to happen can, because I think the America is now familiar with what black anger and hatred looks like. And I think that we don't like it. I don't think that there, I think that, I think that the black community is recognizing what their own destructive ability can, can produce. And it's not, and it's not, they're not morally, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, they're not. Uh, they're as culpable as 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 any white living white person right now could be, arbitrarily. Um, I don't know if I'm doing a good jo job describing this, but what I'm saying is that we now see what it looks like, and that may never have happened. And I think that there's a pathway potentially to racial reconciliation that could not have happened if Obama had not been elected. And I do think that's a win for him. Yeah, and I don't really. I mean, I, I respect. I, I respect kind of what you're saying, but I think that uh, my view of it is there was a clear arc that had been existing for decades of things getting better, again, acknowledging not perfect, acknowledging, yes, there's still racism, acknowledging perhaps in places like Ferguson, it's bad, maybe. But the point is, on the larger macro scale, things were improving, and I just it does not feel like that way anymore. Do I think there's a, a kernel of truth in your larger point there that maybe something good will ultimately come out of this? Uh, maybe, but I see so much. The, the pendulum has swung so far past reality that when you see a Donald Trump who's, for instance, you know, invited uh, Jim Brown and Ray Lewis to, you know, to Trump Tower to talk about things that they can do to improve things in the inner city and the people he's nominated, blacks that he's nominated for various positions, um, you know, I still see way too much of what I would call, you know, the Uncle Tomism of, uh, 
we're all for blacks to be promoted, but only if there are blacks. Yeah, it's, they gotta, um, it, you it's know, and, and that's a that's a ahead. double standard that will always enrage me because it's like, how can you say you're pro black, but but then put qualifications on it? It's got to be, and again, it's the brainwashing that's been done over decades of the, I give the Democratic Party, you know, kudos for creating this mindset, which is, you know, that somehow Republicans are against blacks, which they aren't. And I think a, a, a real reason why I have such passion on this point is because, and, 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 I, and it probably comes across sometimes exactly the opposite of what's underlying this. I get mad on these points. I'm, I'm, furious with Obama on this point we're talking about, which, which again is he had the ability to unite the country. He could have, and he just chose not to, is because I'm fucking white. And most of the people, not all, but most of the people that I know are white. And I sincerely don't know anybody who I truly believe is racist. And so when I, when I see this narrative over and over, white people racist, it just pisses me off because, you know, for the most part, in my experience, it's not true. And uh, that, again, I want to acknowledge some people are. I know that. But it, I think it's made out in the media to be so much worse than it really is. And it certainly doesn't warrant the burning down of cities. So we've spent too much time on this. I apologize because I know that I was the cause of that for the most part. So, <laughs> um, so and, and, you, and you've, you know, you've made good points in, in counter to it. And I, and I do concede that Obama did step into a very awkward and, and strange situation. But, you know, I guess my final comment on this is he could have stepped in and taken an entirely different approach. He could have chosen to diffuse and unite, diffuse and unite, diffuse and unite. And I think people would have taken his lead and he could have united and healed this country in a way. Like, people still rally around Martin Luther King. I still get choked up. I w- I'll occasionally watch, you know, his I Have a Dream speech. Mm-hmm. And it'll make me cry. And it's like, that's what we need right there. If Obama had led like that, it's like, I think he could have, he could have taken racism down to, it'll never be zero, let's be honest. Because he could have cut it way down if he had led like that. But he didn't. Well, I just think it's important to remember that, you know, we're recording this on Martin Luther King Day. And I think that, you know, his message of unity... Uh, that he expressed in the I Have a Dream speech, I think is important because the, one, of the, one of the points that I think you and I do agree on and that I think came out under Obama's second term is this, uh, this the progressive sort of SJW uh, leftist crowd of the world, I think is interested in, in actually dividing us up. And the way that they're doing that is by looking for safe spaces and trigger warnings and special rules that some people get. And which is strange because that seems to be exactly the opposite of what Dr. King talked about in that speech. I'm glad that you brought that up about Martin Luther King Day. I'd actually, I knew it and I'd forgotten it for the moment. So, so what's your next point? Uh, I bailed out the auto industry is my next point that we had the auto industry was, was, uh, in a tailspin. It was um, seriously in trouble, and the Obama administration took an initiative along with Congress, and I will say that, in order to bail out the auto industry, and those loans were repaid. It didn't throw money at the problem that then—it didn't try to bail out a sinking ship that then went under anyway. 
the the auto industry, and particularly GM, turned around with government loans. And we'll say this, which is interesting, that the only company that did not take those loans was Ford and is also doing fine. But General Motors and Chrysler both took those loans uh, and uh, became profitable, solvent, and then paid the loans back. I think that that's a big deal. That's a big win. I completely agree, and I don't counter that at all. I 100% support that. I did not expect you to say that. No, I'm dead serious. I, <laughs> Pardon me, the air just went out of this room. No, I'm dead serious. Now, granted, I think I'm biased because I live in this town. I live in you know the Motor City where uh, probably, obviously, the benefit was the greatest, so I'm not objective. But I don't see how you argue against that point. I think it's just, yeah, I totally agree. And, and I think maybe, and I should have put it earlier, except I, I thought it was actually not the biggest point of his presidency, but I think that that might be one of the only ringing successes that I think the administration will walk out and people will go, oh yeah, that happened. And it happened so well that actually people kind of forget about it because it's not controversial. No, that's a good point too. No, but I completely concede the point. You win it 100%, zero pushback. Bang. I mean, I, look, and I will, I'll, I'll, I'll toss this out. I don't know what president maybe wouldn't have done that, if that makes sense. Dude, talking dude about- shut up. You're arguing for him. Don't apologize for winning a point. <laughs> All right, got it. All right, so my next point is uh, why I think Obama is the worst president ever is just his general handling of terrorism as an issue and, and as a major area of concern for most Americans. And again, I don't want to take the time, but I have a list, I'll put it in the blog post, of all the terror attacks that have happened on American soil you know, since he took office, and the list is large. And I go, th- I, again, I don't want to take the time to read it, but uh, I'm just looking at it. And so, um, the names... Yeah, our, our average listener doesn't need to have that list, list read to them. Yeah. They, 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 they know. But, you know, the names of the people. I mean, and literally, I think in every case but one, they're obviously, you know, like Mohammed, Ismail, uh, Ahmad, Razak Ali, Artan. I mean, all these names and, and you know, how many times people were quoted as saying Allahu Akbar as they were committing an act. And, and that leads me to my next point under this, all these terror attacks and Obama's refusal to call terror by its real name, which is almost always radical Islamic terror. The fact that he referred to one or more of these incidents, one of which was a woman's head being cut off as workplace violence, and the fact that, you know, even when there was clear evidence, again, these Allahu Akbar statements being made by somebody in a recorded video, that he would never come out and call it what it was. Then there was the fact that, you know, and this, this should hit home for you because of all the time you spent in Paris. And again, for those of you who haven't listened to us before, Brendan worked at the U.S. Embassy in Paris and then lived there again in another different occasion for an extended period of time. So, you know, there's a connection between Brendan and Paris, but in the aftermath of the Charlie Hebdo killings, um, you know, Obama didn't go to Paris where, you know, there were 44 heads of state that joined arms there on one of the famous streets. I think it was Boulevard Voltaire. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Obama was not there. And CNN said that they were ashamed 
This, um, this is a quote. That he wasn't yeah, there. CNN's yeah. Jake Tapper said he was ashamed that Mr. Obama, Vice President Joe Biden, or, or any other high-level U.S. official failed to stand alongside leaders from the U.K., Israel, the Palestinian Authority, Germany, and Jordan. And it's like, you know, he didn't go, but, but yet he could send three representatives to Michael Brown's funeral in, in Ferguson, which is true. Um, and so, and then, and then to make... To, in my opinion, to add insult to injury, he then later sends John Kerry and James Taylor. Remember that bullshit? <laughs> and so, so, and again, a whole. I could. I'm, I'm really trying to be brief now, because I know how long we're running. But I just think that his entire handling of 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 terror has been. He's done just enough to look like he's trying, and I just. You know, I know you and others, I think you will react negatively to that statement, and I think others listening will as well, but I just think that's his M.O., is that, you know, the, he's just not, he's never really felt like, uh, he's not carrying out those presidential demands of protecting Americans and enforcing the Constitution to its fullest, and I think you know, immigration policies and all that tie into this, and foreign policy as it relates to how he's handled ISIS. I'm not even going to touch that ISIS issue because it's so convoluted and there's so much there. But, you know, I just think the fact that he won't call it radical Islamic terror, if that doesn't stick in your gut somehow, I'd like to know why not. Yeah, I think I'm about as close as to conceding this point as I think you were in the last one, and and it's because of I think that his greatest fa- I mean, like, look, I and again, I'm I'm on the pro Obama side, but I can admit that his greatest failure is going to be foreign policy, that the 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 real problem internationally uh, that's that's sort of taken place, especially with radical Islam and the idea that Americans really aren't safe abroad, I, I will concede that I think the handling of Benghazi was a, also yep. a, 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 to steel man your argument there, um, I think is, a, is important to, to remember and recall. And then honestly, also to, I think, check Russian aggression and moving into the Crimea, which is another totally different point. And also in uh, and also in um, uh, Ukraine, I think that both of those, I think that both of those things f- happened on Obama's watch. Very little f- American involvement felt like it happened there. Um, and I would say the same thing is true also in Libya and the, the Arab Spring, sort of generally. I mean, I, I will steel man your argument here because I think that I think that it is his greatest failing. And I think that if it is, I think it actually it casts into light sort of the. The I think uh, success he's had sort of elsewhere, um, because this this is really pretty. I think it's pretty pretty abysmal, and I think it is exactly because of what you described. I mean, part of it I think is maybe my personal relationship that I have sort of with the city of Paris, and you know, and uh, and people who I I love and care about there who were very scared for a while. Um, I think with pretty good reason. And I think also, I mean, it's, 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 it's this case. I think that also as a, I think as a liberal and as the liberal in this argument who, who I think didn't want to see Donald Trump win, I think that part of the reason Trump won was because the, we couldn't, we meaning liberals, the left couldn't bring ourselves to say, Hey, um, this is, this is Islamic terrorism. That's what it is. And we, we're not going to try to pussyfoot around the fact that we're at war with an ideology that wants us dead. And if, if that had, I feel like if we had just said that stuff, 
And if Obama had said it and if Hillary Clinton had said it, who I think is just, an, to be perfectly honest, an extension of a lot of Obama's, uh, Obama-isms, um, I think that that would have potentially changed the, the nature of the, um, of the election. But none of that stuff happened, and it happened all on, 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 on his watch. And I completely agree with you. I think if Hillary had just, if Hillary had done exactly what you just implied or just used the words that Trump used, I think she wins in a landslide. And to be honest with you, my fervor against her would have been cut down by 25% at least. I was so afraid yeah. that she was going to continue Obama's policy on this stuff and because she spoke all the same words. That So, all right, well, I appreciate your objectivity in hearing that because I think it's been, I think it's really, you know, I, I hate to say black and white because maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but but pretty darn close to black and white that he just hasn't taken a firm enough stance. He's never made me feel safe. It always felt to me as if he were more concerned with crafting the right words to use after the next terror attack to minimize the blowback on the Muslim, uh, Muslim American community, which to me, I'm yeah. not saying there's not legitimacy in that thought, but that shouldn't be primary. That should be secondary. Primary should be making Americans feel safe, making him feel like he really cared about protecting people. And I still don't think that he did. I still don't think he does. I just really don't. So enough on that point. Mm. What's your next point? Uh, my next point is he killed bin Laden, motherfucker. Okay, I, won't, I will not argue that. I, I think it's a little more nuanced, but the, the bottom line is the bottom line. And, uh, he, you know, the only thing I'll say there is that it made me really uneasy when I heard, oh, his body was dumped at sea. Like, what? Why? Yeah. Why? Uh, it, yeah, it was a little weird. I'll, I'll admit that, too. I think it was, a, it was a little strange. But I think that part of it comes from the fact that we're like, look, we're going we're to wrap this up. We're done. We're done. We're not going to have a fucking... This is, this is done. We killed the guy who did it, and we're going to move on. Eh, and I think that... Eh, that's pretty flimsy, dude. I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, I guess. Uh, and again, I'm not going to argue it further. I mean, the bottom line is it appears that he is dead, and that did happen under Obama's watch, and I do give him credit for that. All right. Well, let's hear your next point then, buddy, and I got one more to make. Okay. Uh, all right. The next one is, is a companion... Uh, piece to a point that's already been discussed, which is just our overall, you know, the, the, the degrading of the relationship with our number one ally in the Middle East, Israel. You know, we've had this historic, historic, long-standing relationship with them as our number one ally in the region. And, you know, they're the only, they're the only country over there that really has a, a, a society like ours in terms of, you know, democracy and, um, uh, embracing other people, they allow you know, Muslims in their country, and they, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. Our Judeo, our common Judeo-Christian belief system, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and as has been widely publicized, you know, that relationship has just gone into the tank. And you know, the fact that I'll just rattle off this this list quickly: the fact that you know. Uh, the State Department paid $350,000 uh, to try to uh, spin uh, the last Israeli presidential election against Netanyahu, uh, mm. which is crazy. Uh, the Iran deal itself, we already talked about that. I don't need to comment on that except to say that you know and you remember 
that Netanyahu came and spoke to U.S. Congress. Yeah, I remember that. And um, and I'm reading, quoting. It's the first time that's ever happened. I, think, I believe a head so. Of state visited and it's, directly it's, addressed Congress. If not literally unprecedented, it's fairly unprecedented. And there's one quick quote: "Is that Netanyahu has defended the speech as a legitimate attempt to stop Obama from making concessions to Iran." that the Israeli leader said would leave Tehran on the brink of being able to build a nuclear weapon. Again, I already made that point, but I'm just saying that's why he did it. That was, you know, of course Obama wasn't there, Kerry wasn't there. I mean, he was snubbed. And then something that just happened is uh, UN Resolution 2334, which happened just last month, where, and again, there's way too much detail to go into here, but the bottom line is, as it was phrased by uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, I'm just going to read, this is just the introductory quote from the article. Last Friday, on the eve of Hanukkah and Christmas, Barack Obama stabbed Israel in the front. The departing president refused to veto UN Security Council Resolution 2334, a measure ostensibly about Israeli settlement policy, but clearly intended to tip the peace process toward the Palestinians. Its adoption wasn't pretty, but sadly it was predictable. And, uh, and interestingly, um, uh, Netanyahu came out and claims he has hard evidence to prove he's going to give to Donald Trump if he hasn't already that shows that uh, the Obama administration was directly involved in orchestrating those events. And then a uh, hmm. final point here is that Alan Dershowitz, and if you don't know who he, who he is, he's a, he's a very famous attorney, a very liberal Democratic attorney who is a friend of Obama, and uh, I'm going to link of, to a video in the, the blog post underneath this podcast, but he, in this brief video, it's only like two minutes long, he's, he calls Obama the worst foreign policy president ever, and he, and he said, listen to this, I, like, I didn't realize it was this, you know, like this detailed. Dershowitz said that Obama said to him in the Oval Office... So Dershowitz wow. was in the Oval Office that Obama just and said it straight to... up, straight up lied to him. Oh my gosh. And so what ended up happening, you know, with this turn of events, he said that, you know, Dershowitz was just enraged. So, you know, Obama has done lots to damage our relationship. And there's been so much written about this. You know, Netanyahu hates Obama. Obama hates Netanyahu. And, you know, I just think it's there's just a special relationship that America has had with Israel during the totality of Israel's existence. And it's just sad that Obama has taken the relationship where he has. The good news is that, you know, and I, a point I'm going to make in a minute about Russia, about this whole Russian hacking thing, comes back to yeah. this. But basically it is Netanyahu is knows that, you know, Obama's over. He's on his way out the door. He's got a great relationship with Trump just as... Putin has done the same thing in terms of his reaction to, you know, Russian diplomats being thrown out of, of the U.S., which I'll get to in a minute. So, but that's my point, is that I think he's done a lot of damage to that relationship. And the only reason that he would do that is, is because he's chosen. You pretty much can only choose one when it comes to that conflict between Israel and, uh, and you know, the aggressors around Israel who want to kill Israel. And I think Obama has clearly chosen to side with the opposition. Hmm. Hmm. Again, this is a, an issue that's so complicated. I feel like I, uh, it's, 
it's challenging. I think Obama being a champion of, I think, uh, Pal- Palestinian second state independence, I think is, I, I, look, I think a two-state solution, I mean, maybe is the only, and there are, there are a lot of, I think, people who agree with the idea that a two-state solution is the only solution in the Middle East. We'll table that for a moment. I think if that is the case, and I think Obama thinks it is, uh, I would say that his actions have been consistent in trying to pursue that solution. I think that uh, the UN resolution you're talking about, if I'm if I recall, is 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 the, that the resolution that essentially is condemning the, uh, the uh, settling on Palestinian land? Yes, in the, yes, uh, in the West Bank. Yes, but there's so much more nuance to it, and that's the point that Dershowitz makes in this video that I'll link to, where he basically says it was a classic mm. case of, you know, let's give it this, let's give it this, you know, headline. This is what this is about. But there's all this other stuff inside that resolution that basically yeah. prevents Israel from worshiping in its most holy place that it's had since, you know, for thousands of years. There's all this other stuff built into mm-hmm. it that, you know, that uh, people don't bother to read and understand, and they just get the headline, and and it doesn't sound so crazy until you read it, until you see the details. So... Mm, okay. Well, I have to take a look at that. All right. Uh, so what's your next to, point? In order to... To really be okay, so my next point is this: I think that Obama, I think Obama does not get enough uh, positive news uh, for uh, refocusing his uh, refocusing the American military presence in the Pacific. I think that uh, the Pacific, uh, in the next, certainly the next, I think decade, I think into twenty twenty and beyond, is going to be. A real challenge. I think the Middle East, it's going to be what the Middle East was uh, and I, I think and still is potentially, but even more so back through the sort of 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, I think the Pacific may be headed in that direction for a number of reasons, and things over there may be more volatile because we have more people. Um, uh, and, and I think that Obama decided to point the American military at rebuilding sort of a Pacific presence. And I think that that actually will prove to be wise uh, in the next decade. I'm a wholly ignorant of this point. Can you just tell me why you think that's a good move? Well, there's a lot that's going on over in the Pacific. But uh, basically, I think the, the there's a lot of sort of geopolitical situations, particularly in the South China Sea, uh, particularly with North Korea, with the presence of Russia in the in the region, um, tensions between Malaysia, tensions in Thailand. Um, there's a lot that goes on over there, and especially with the rise of China specifically. I mean, China is becoming a, 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 a real power and has been. I mean, it has been doing that for some time. Right. But they're pushing their claims in the South China Sea in a similar way, the way that Russia was in Crimea and, and in the Donetsk People's Republic, or whatever that region of Ukraine is called now. And uh, that that tension could potentially destabilize that entire region for a number of reasons. I mean, just think of North Korea doing something kind of crazy, shooting off a rocket, um, you know, Japan pushing against sort of Russia in the northwest and then uh, against China in the southwest. I mean, you see Trump took the phone call from the uh, president of Thailand. I mean, the one China policy alone has already upset a relationship with essentially a world superpower like China. And I think that building up America's military presence in order to project American power into that region... 
I think was a wise proactive decision that Obama made, and I think that we're gonna we're we're going to potentially avoid problems in the. I mean, whatever problems we may have in the future, bigger ones may have been avoided by having American power projected uh, in that region of the world again by running drills and by um, reinforcing bases and by building up a, another Pacific uh, fleet. Okay. Um, well, as I already said, I'm pretty pretty ignorant of that point. I'll I'll, I'll send you a, an, a Vice News report on it. And and I'll the only thing I'll say in in counter to that is that the flip side of that could be that you know a show of power is also can be viewed as provocation. So you know uh, that that's the only. But I'm not I'm not saying I'm making a big point there. That's just a logical reaction that you know if. Just as taking the phone call from Taiwan could upset China, well, what would putting a fleet of warships do? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the only difference is that, I would say, between those two is that American power already existed there, and just reinforcing it doesn't change the status quo necessarily. Okay, that's fair. Um, all right, so my next point, and was that, did I hear you right that that was your last point? Yeah, that was really my sort of my last point here. Okay, so I'm going to actually combine a couple things here because um, it's sort of I had I had these as separate points, at least the next two. I'm going to combine them, and uh, the first I called not prosecuting Hillary for her email server scandal, and then the one after that was called Russian hacking of the election because I actually think these are related, and um, I'm going to again grossly condense this, but. And because I think, given the fact that we're recording this in January of 2017, the whole Hillary server scandal issue is fairly fresh in everyone's mind, probably. Yeah. So and probably the Russian hacking thing too. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Although, I, although I do want to comment a little more specifically about the Russian hacking, but uh, the point here is that you know, again, I'm skipping past all these subpoints that I could make. The the key question lots of people ask is, well, why did you know, why did the Justice Department, you know, drop its investigation? You know, why weren't there, why what, Why didn't more happen with regard to the Hillary email scandal? And the shorthand on that, in my opinion and the opinion of many others, is because Obama himself was directly involved. And that what, what would have been disclosed, and again, I can cite specific reference to this if you want, or you can just take my word for it, is that there's pretty hard evidence to suggest that, you know, Obama was was emailing uh, Hillary on these on these you know illegal accounts. So he therefore mm-hmm. had direct knowledge, and not only that, but what the subject matter of that could have been. And so that the tie the tie there to the Russian hacking is that the whole Russian hacking was a manufactured issue intended to just keep the one to, to misdirect away from other issues and also to, um, to basically push further down the whole, the whole, well, what was the content of this stuff that surfaced? Because the, and this, I'm quoting CNN, and I swear to God, this is really how it happened. I, when I researched this earlier this afternoon, I just typed in Russian hacking. And the first thing I found was CNN. The first thing I found was a CNN article, and the title of it was, What Does the U.S. Believe Russia Did to Interfere in the 2016 Campaign? Again, I'll repeat, this is CNN. I'm reading verbatim. 
What does the U.S. believe Russia did to interfere in the 2016 campaign? The U.S. government publicly announced in October that it was confident Russia orchestrated the hacking of the DNC and other political organizations of the Democratic Party. Those hacks revealed, pardon me, those hacks resulted in the public release of thousands of stolen emails, many of which included damaging revelations about the Democratic Party and former Senator of State Hillary Clinton, the party's nominee. Mm -hmm. Obama says he is determined to take action against Russia and says Putin is well aware of my feelings about this because I spoke to him directly about it. Quote, I think there's no doubt that when any foreign government tries to impact the integrity of our of our elections, that we need to take action and we will at a time and place of our choosing, he told NPR. So stop and absorb that. This is CNN. And the question was, what does the U.S. believe Russia did to interfere in the election? So they revealed damaging information. No one is disputing the veracity of the information that was revealed. Mm-hmm. Do I need to say more here? It's like, are you crazy? I mean, even if it's exactly true as Obama states that we're, we're going to sanction a foreign government for revealing true things about people, and in today's world, yes, that's what we do. And so, to, just to finish my point, so, you know, later, the, the White House announces retaliation against Russia. Again, this is a CNN article I'm paraphrasing, um, you know, uh, Sanctions Russia, ejects diplomats. So President Barack Obama took unprecedented steps um, uh, alleging Russian interference, and the uh, 35 Russian diplomats were ordered to leave the country. Two Russian compounds are closed. And, and hilariously, the Russian response, the Russian response, which I found so hilarious, is that they invited the U.S. equivalents to their Christmas party. <laughs> they ejected I mean, no one. No one. And I'm, I'm going to cut to the end. This is the official response from the Russian, from Putin. And it says, and again, I'm skipping past all this stuff just to get to the end. It is regrettable that the Obama administration is ending its term in this manner. Nevertheless, I offer my New Year greetings to President Obama and his family. My season's greetings also to President-elect Donald Trump and the American people. I wish all of you happiness and prosperity. It's like it was just it was such a punking of Obama by Putin. And then uh, I'm going to include a link and a screenshot of a tweet from the Russian embassy in the UK, and it's got a picture of a little duckling with the word lame over the top of it. Oh, yeah. And, and the tweet says, President Obama expels 35 Russian diplomats in Cold War deja vu, as everybody, including American people, will be glad to see the last of this hapless administration. That is an official tweet from the Russian embassy UK. I mean, you want to talk about the lack of respect that Putin has for Obama is, you know, the public the publicness of it. I mean, the fact that Putin thinks Obama is a joke. Think what you will about Putin. But, you know, to get to the point where we have the leaders of the two superpowers of the world dealing with each other in this fashion, it does not... It does not speak highly of where Obama has taken us. 
No, I would. I okay. I will agree with that. I feel like this is a rather nuanced point, and we could have a whole other episode about. Uh, well, I think it's a nuanced point. I don't think you think it's a nuanced point. Um, well, but well, I, I do, feel like we, I, I no, I do think it is a nuanced point, and I do think there's more to it. But I'm trying to make my point succinctly so that this podcast doesn't yep. last yep. three hours. But I think the broad points I've made are fair, and I think that when you know when when we have the director of the FBI on TV when directly questioned by uh, by Gowdy, and I, I'm going to link this video where he goes through and lists all these things where where you know the very things that she wasn't she wasn't indicted for he admits she did i mean yep. there, there's no viable explanation for that other than we must win this election why must we why must we win this election because because there's all this shit that could come out if we don't and i'll even go so far i obama will go so far as to 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 rattle the cage of russia in this aggressive of a fashion, um, uh, oh, and I do need to go back and say one more thing. This is this is an excerpt from that same thing I already quoted from Putin's address, you know Putin's official response to the Russians being mm-hmm. thrown out. I just missed it. So it says, as it proceeds from international practice, Russia has reasons to respond in kind. Although we have the right to retaliate, we will not resort to irresponsible kitchen diplomacy but will plan our further steps to restore Russian-U.S. relations based on the policies of the Trump administration. Yeah, I, uh, so here's, here's how I feel about this. And I think that, so I, I, I won't disagree with you that I think that, you know, as we have already sort of discussed foreign policy, I think uh, my feelings about it are that I think this is Obama's Obama's greatest failures, I think, um, fall under the realm of foreign policy. My feelings about this particular issue and the, it, with, with respect to, I think, the prosecuting of Hillary, just to separate these things, and then Russian email hacking as separate issues, uh, I don't know if I can lump all under Obama's uh, authority. I suppose you can in the sense that a president should, I think, uh, he's responsible. Some kind, of, he's responsible. some kind of responsibility. He's responsible for his people and his administration. Absolutely, he is. So I can agree with that. And I think that that falling under Hillary, I think, and the persecution of her, prosecution of her emails, I think is, is certainly, I think, meaningful. Uh, I think that there was an opportunity to, uh, let's put it this way, that if there is, so if you, if you believe guys like Sam Harris, which I'm inclined to do, um, at at the worst, there's a handful of emails that 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 truly do look like okay. This is this could require a um, a uh, an investigation. The bulk of a lot of these emails that have come out are essentially innocuous. Um, now, if you go, it, it, but even approaching that proactively and at the head of the uh, admin, of the country and the party, the Democratic Party. I think it would have behooved Obama to have taken a, a far more pro- proactive approach to handling uh, that those emails and Hillary Clinton's situation. And what that would have looked like, I don't know. Maybe that would have been a full investigation that we, you know, in exactly maybe the way that um, 
you would like to have seen done or something like this. I don't know, but very little happened is what happened. And certainly Obama didn't talk about it or address it very much. And I think that that's a huge miss. I will agree with that. Um, I think the second part of this, which is Russian hacking, I think is a, a whole, we should do a whole other podcast on this because there's a lot of stuff that I think is going on there that I think is challenging and it's challenging for Obama specifically um, because of, of two reasons. I think the first is that uh, he's leaving and he's aware of that. And I think that Obama is not a stupid guy. And I think that uh, for all of his faults, I think he's actually an intelligent guy. And I think that going out of office uh, presents a number of challenges for him in order to try and transition to the next administration. Um, now, expelling Russian diplomats, you could say, is sort of the least the United States had to do something if this, if this kind of thing is in the news and is also supported by intelligence documents, which it is. So there can't be nothing. I mean, Russians interfered with Amer the American election, and the veracity of those things that they found, uh, totally accurate, releasing only half of them is different. I mean, if you're in a race locally in Plymouth, and I, and I get dirt on, on both of you and your opponent, but I only remind everybody in the United States, or rather in, <laughs> in Plymouth, that, oh, by the way, my uncle Michael McClure did these things, and then say nothing about the other person, I mean, it's going to influence the election. Uh, that I think is is patently true. And you have um, some evidence, but, or someone has some evidence that that happened. Yeah, the it, it, the United States Intelligence Service has evidence that Russia hacked. I mean, the the CIA does, the FBI does. I mean, mm -hmm. these are both both of these things are I think are 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 uh, released uh, to the general public. I mean, we know uh, that there's a mm -hmm. there's a strong case to be made that Russians hacked the DNC and used. Uh, WikiLeaks as a as an outlet for, and so for you, disseminating this information. And you saw Julian Assange on TV denying that. I didn't see Julian Assange doing anything. Oh no, that Google it right now because there's an hour long uh, interview he did with Sean Hannity last week in which. Yeah, I, I, look, I, here's what I want to flip around, and this can again, with this, we're gonna have to save this for another. Episode, but I want to flip this around. If this was happening when Hillary Clinton got into office and the tables were turned, and you saw Julian Assange in the country that was accused of doing this, saying who has harbored him, saying, "Oh, I didn't have anything to do with this," I I feel like that would be a rather hard case for me to make that you would be having a similar response to the to what you I assume are having now to me, uh, or what I see you having to me now. I think that. You, you you would be far more willing, I think, were the shoe on the other foot, to not if to, to not doubt. if the information revealed that my guy was a crook. I wouldn't say a fucking word. What, what, what do you mean? If you mean you mean if I'm saying that I, that revealed my my guy's a crook, I'm not saying that Hillary Clinton's not a crook. I mean, I'm right. I think and I'm I think that trumps everything. Saying that that trumps everything for me. Well, it certainly trumped the election, but well, she won the popular it, vote, so. Uh, well, she didn't. I mean, she didn't win the electoral vote, and we so, have the structure for a reason. Right, I understand. But the point is, so you think that? Well, we could we could debate this for a long time. But again, to me, for me, this is simpler than it is for you, because I think once you reveal a person is as evil to the core as Hillary obviously is, in my opinion, who it doesn't. I don't care who revealed the information. I could care less. I mean, these people are heroes, in my opinion. 
for well uh, see this is the problem this is and this is we're gonna have to do another episode on this because we're gonna have to talk about it because here's the problem the fact that the heroes in this story to you are a foreign power that does not have has no interest in i mean the i mean russia has no what they don't give a shit about the united states well russia has its own interest you're speaking as if this is a confirmed fact and fact that i'm still saying i don't think it is I think it. I, I think it. I think it's uh, the preponderance of evidence uh, is sh- shows that it is. Uh, I think that, and I think that that will only I think be strengthened in the future unless uh, Donald Trump's administration guts uh, the intelligence services. I mean, <gasps> I, I I genuinely dude, am concerned about dude, this. You didn't really say that, did you? I did oh. because a lot of the people in his administration have ties to Russian uh, oil interests. And the, these, the, the, those, that's on record. Oh, I mean, so, those and, things and are not Hillary, untrue. Hillary, who, who facilitated the sale of uranium to Russia at great personal profit, you can come up with anything that trumps that? We're not, I'm not talking about Hillary Clinton. I'm talking about the, the incoming president of our country. Right, but I'm saying if Hillary had won, would you, if Hillary had won, would you be expressing those same sentiments? She has this... I'd be. I'd probably be expressing different concerns if Hillary had. If Hillary had won. Uh, all right. Let's 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 uh, agree to disagree on this, and let's agree to have a, a specific entire show on this because clearly there's more here. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. And I want to wrap this up because I know we're running out of time. So I'm gonna. And you're out of points. So I'm gonna make a couple of quick points, and we'll be done. And we actually all will right. get through my list again. I'm gonna shorthand this as best I can. So. Uh, another thing that really has troubled me about uh, about uh, Obama's presidency is his abuse of executive power. And again, there's a lot a lot of stuff that I could talk about here that I've got notes in front of, but I don't want to take the time. Uh, I'll I'll include all the links uh, below, but I'm just going to jump and, and pick out a couple of quotes out of context, and you'll just hopefully get the gist of it. Um, and again, out of context, I apologize. Uh, the Obama administration's signature move has been aggressively to sidestep the democratic process. President Obama has been unapologetic about his unprecedented use of executive power. And of course, that robust view of the executive's prerogative does not occur in a vacuum, but creates an important precedent. The New York Times acknowledged as much prior to the election, noting that Obama's pursuit of, quote, executive power without apology will reshape the presidency for decades to come, and again, I'm I'm going to uh, I'm going to skip most of this, uh, but a couple of highlights are that there was there was this um, uh, uh, an executive order that Obama put forth. I think it was in 2014 regarding immigration, and that was that was later shot down by a federal court, and then the federal court's um, uh, ruling was later affirmed by the Supreme Court. Do you know what mm. I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. So again, just to set, provide some context. So uh, uh, he, this is this is what that federal court said. It said in preventing the guidance from going into effect, a federal district court agreed, finding that President Obama is quote not just rewriting the laws; he is creating them from scratch. End quote. The Supreme Court was concerned, too. In deciding to review the case, the court took the highly unusual step of adding a question asking whether the, referring to the executive order, violated the take care clause of the Constitution, which requires that the president, 
open quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, close quote. In adding that question, the Supreme Court signaled its concern that the president may have gone beyond his duty to execute the law. And there's a lot more I could say here, but again, I don't want to take 10 more minutes to do it. But, mm-hmm. you know, for the Supreme Court to state that apparently is highly unusual. And where, where is this article from? Uh, I, I've got, I'll, I'll include a link. Uh, but, okay. but it's citing the New York, it's citing the New York Times and referencing to it repeatedly. Mm. Um, and uh, here's, another, here's a final one also from the New York Times. It said, um, but there's even more at stake than reversing the Obama administration's rule by executive fiat. President Obama has created a dangerous roadmap for the future. To sidestep Congress, the New York Times wrote pre-election, future presidents have the legacy of Obama. In other words, Obama's done this shit so much that future presidents can look, you could point back to what he did and use it as some sort of credence or justification for doing it themselves. Mm. And, and then my final point, and this actually is a continuation of that point because it's talking about the same basic case, is that uh, you know Obama put forth this executive order because Congress wouldn't approve it that would have allowed millions of undocumented immigrants to remain in the country and work legally. That's what the the federal ju- you know court shot down, and then the Supreme Court later up- upheld. But it's you know it's just his his desire to to just take these actions outside of Congress, outside of the lawmaking process. And, and, and the final point I make here is that Saturday Night Live did a, did a sketch that was hilarious, and I'm going to include a link to it. But basically it was, you know, this, this bill, uh, a person dressed as a bill, you know. A, 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 oh, yeah. Did yeah, you yeah, see yeah. that? Like, did uh, you see that? From, I think I did, and it was like the making fun of the schoolhouse rock. Uh, yes, and so basically what happens is the, this bill talks about, you know, this is, I'm a bill and this is how I become law. And Obama comes along and literally kicks it down the stairs. And then this <laughs> other thing, an executive order walks over smoking a cigarette, looking all dirty and basically said, you know, he, he just paraphrased like, Hey, you know, I'm done. I'm a law. And then the bill comes, climbs back up the stairs and says, <laughs> what's, I don't understand. It can't be that simple. Yeah, pretty much is. But when Saturday Night Live <laughs> <laughs> Which is an incredibly, you know, liberal forum. Yeah, you know, is, yeah, is yeah. poking fun at your tendencies. It's pretty clear that uh, you've you stepped too far. And again, I've got a lot more evidence here that I'll include in the blog post. And yeah, tons of executive orders, lots of prosecutions under the uh, that what is that act from the First World War? Um, similar thing. There's a lot of weird. The Obama's reputation on whistleblowers is going to be is bad um, for similar reasons. And there's actually a number of other points I could have made. There's the IRS targeting of conservative groups. It's just fact at this point. Obama's disdain for the military, which, you know, I have relatives in the military, and they'll talk about it till you don't want to hear about it anymore. The Guantanamo releases, the Benghazi thing that I didn't even bring up, but you did. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just a lot of stuff here that, you know, I, well, first of all, I want to say I appreciate the points you raised. And you really did move me some, um, you know, and that was the point of this is to have a real honest conversation. Uh, I respect the points you raised. I disagree with many of them, but, 
<laughs> well, that's to be expected. I mean, that, you knew that coming in. Yeah. But yeah. I, I respect the fact that you did some homework and raised some good points. And, you know, I just hope that the people who listen to this will listen all the way through because I think this has been an interesting conversation. And, you know, uh, like you said in one of our previous episodes, you hope that somebody listens to us and maybe, if nothing else, they understand that you can have some sort of a reasonably respectful dialogue and really listen to what the yeah. other person says. I really listen to the points you made. Well, and I mean, just to, I, I, this is a good representation. I mean, I'll, I'll be the first example of this because when I, I, not going into this necessarily, but when we had kind of tossed it around or when we had tossed it out, I thought this will be good exercise. And the second, the reason I thought that partially was that I had listened to someone recently, and it might have been on Sam Harris's podcast, uh, which is something I listen to a lot, but it might have been Sam Harris's podcast. I forget who it was who was discussing Obama's legacy and record and what is his future, you know, what are we going to think about him like in the future? And the guy was like, he was a liberal, uh, he was a liberal, basically, and he just kind of went through and just time after time after time was talking about, like, here's all of these failures that Obama's had in foreign policy, and some of which came into sort of domestic policy. I mean, like, we, we haven't even begun to talk about, like, a, like Obama's treatment of, like, vets, uh, like oh, the yeah. like veterans oh, yeah. in the United States. And, like, the fact that, I mean, if you have, you know what I mean, like, that, that falls directly under, like, uh, the executive, uh, I think, responsibilities is to take care of military and post-military personnel. And I mean, I, I, I was moved. I mean, I, I'm somebody who, you know, voted Obama in 2008 and, um, and was ec ecstatic to see him voted, in, voted into office at the time. And I was pro Obama in 20, 2012, although that was a far more uh, I, th I think I didn't, wasn't quite, I sort of lost his luster by that point, but I think the whole time I had thought he's not as bad as all, everybody makes him out to be. Everybody's got this real uh, anti-Obama streak, and I think it, it has to do with you know race partially and seeing him as other and all these things. And, and I don't want to bring up that discussion now, but the point is, is at the time, those were sort of my feelings. Right. And as I've gone through and looked a lot at more of it, I was like, wow, actually, he really wasn't that great. Like, I think he, I think he, was, go I think he was good, for, certainly, and I think that... He's presidential, uh, and such a thing kind of does matter. Uh, but the number of things that I think were happening in the world that were didn't seem to be uh, handled well, I think, is, is great. And the foreign policy is the best example of that. Yeah, and I think his biggest failing is not to repeat things I've already said, but I think the reason that – a reason that Hillary lost the election, which was just a hangover effect from Obama's policies – because people feared a continuation of them. You know, the, <clears throat> the, the terrorism thing, I think, was huge. Um, the, the open borders versus, you know, some, some form of more prudent screening of people. Um, oh, yeah. You know, immigration, yep. you know, Ann Coulter, hater or not, you know, she called it a long time ago. She was on record. I saw something somewhere where she said Trump's going to win, and the reason he's going to win is simple. It's Immigration, that's it. And I believe that, you know, we didn't even really get into that too much. But I view those those issues as related, the, you know, terrorism slash immigration. You know, you see what's going on in Europe. And again, 
you know, what's happened, like mm-hmm. in Paris, you know, we didn't even talk about, we didn't even reference, you know, what happened with the killing of how, 500 people, was it? The other, in, uh, the other incident in w- Paris? Which, what do you, you mean that the, which incident are you talking about? Are you talking about the attack on the, the, the Stade de France? I'm talking about the t- when, when there was the, the nightclub killing and then there were, there were murders all over the city. Oh, it was about 200-something people. I okay, think, sorry, yeah. 200. Sorry, 200. But, you know, yeah. people... Or, I mean, the Berlin Christmas market. I mean, it's a great, another even more recent I example. can't even keep track of it, dude, and I'm not being facetious. But I think Americans yeah. looked over there, in, unless you just don't have access to a television, and you see what's going on in Europe, and it's terrifying. I mean, I am literally terrified for that to end up here because I see it as inevitable unless some policies change somehow because we keep you know importing people and again if you if I if if you could see the list that I was looking at earlier that I didn't read about all the things that have happened in America and how everybody on that list was you know was Muslim or a connection there too it, it's yeah. just you know it's just it's hard to you know I, I get people want to be open-minded and they want to you know, they want to have the Ellis Island philosophy, but, but that's, you know, when you, have, when you have foreigners coming into a country and they're delighted to be here and they want to be American and they want to wave an American flag and they want to speak English, I think 98% or more of, of all Americans are very open to that. But when you have a different class of immigrant that wants to create, a, create its own little cities within cities, like in Paris, you know, we've never even talked about that. You and I have never discussed this, and I want yeah. to discuss it with you at some point. It's like, you know, what did you observe when you lived in Paris? Did you feel the effect of these no-go zones? Was that a real thing? Was that something that weighed on the populace? I mean, just... Yeah, I'm, I mean, this is something else we should just devote a whole Right, and I don't to. want you to give me a long answer, but just, just answer me quickly. Was that a real thing? Eh, kind of. Kind of? Just kind of. Um, not not really. I mean, not the way that Fox News portrayed okay. it. Okay. But all right. I mean, let me put it this way. I there's you know what I mean. Like there's there's uh you saw the the, the reaction that you know um, people had in Mil- Milwaukee where like white people were getting attacked in their cars. Like yep. you just we know where those neighborhoods are. You shouldn't drive through them. Like there's just there's neighborhoods around Paris where like I just if I was walking around I was like this is just a bad neighborhood. Like I don't. It doesn't. The fact that it's predominantly Muslim seems to be incidental to the fact that it's a bad neighborhood. I don't think that those things are 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 not connected. I just don't think that they're connected in the way that the media kind of portrayed they were connected. And and I I can respect and believe that because I have seen uh, pieces on the internet, uh, literally about Dearborn. You know, Dearborn, Michigan, which I referenced earlier in this podcast. That it's like twelve miles from where I'm sitting. It's the largest Arab population in the world outside of the Middle East, literally. And, yeah. and I saw some, you know, some piece that purported to show how, you know, how it basically is a one big no-go zone. And that's total bullshit. And I live here. I mean, so, and I'm hardcore or reasonably right-leaning. So if there were, if it were true, I would be the first to admit it. Um, yeah. So I don't think it's true. So that's, that's fair. But uh, I think we got off point a little bit there. But to, to wrap this up, because this is the longest podcast we've ever done. We're now at... We've ever done, yeah. yeah. We're over two hours. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's still here. Anyone listening now is going to win a million dollars. 
payable in the year 3012. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for listening. And, you know, we've got some really good stuff that came out of this, I think, for future podcasts that we'll be talking about that uh, hopefully will keep you engaged. And we do appreciate your continued support. As I mentioned before, you know, we keep getting really big responses to the things we're posting on our Facebook wall. We really appreciate that. And so uh, this is our first podcast of the new year, I believe. So if we haven't wished you a happy new year, we do that now. And uh, thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you on the next episode of Unkview. Yeah, happy new year, everybody. Thanks, Brendan. Talk to you soon.